0: What would you like to have a conversation about? I'd like to have a conversation about Ex Machina. Hello, I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, and this is Minutia Ex Machina. With me this week is Luke Allen, my co-host from Two Minutes About Time. Welcome. Oh. Or welcome back. Yeah, it's fun to be back. It was also quite a while ago. Yeah, you were near the beginning, minute four or something like that. I think. Mm,
1: yeah, and I've got an exam on X Ex Machina in about two weeks, so nice. this is this is counting as revision. Good. I just really hope this one minute comes up really significantly in my exam question.
0: It actually could, because this is Nathan and Caleb talking about AI, and mm. it's not as good as next minute, but it's pretty good. Yeah,
1: the question will be something in comparing X Machina to the Hunger Games, and I can't remember what. oh <laughs> Yeah. A lot of stuff about I think visual effects and authorship are the main things to bring up, but I'm okay, I, I'm not sure. I've cited you in an exam before. I don't know if we talked about this.
0: You told me you were going to
1: Yeah, yeah. I cited you in an exam on stories we tell. Oh, so nice. Yeah, I can't remember your quote, but I read one of your quotes, and then I had to persuade my teacher and start sending her like all this <laughs> evidence of the fact that you're a professor and all the rest. Yeah. and uh, and then she was like, "Yeah, it's fine. And so I'm going to try and do that in the actual A-levels now just to say that I have, because let's be honest, like, first of all, you are a valid person to cite. And secondly, it's also not like the exam board check every source anyway. Right. And if they did, there wouldn't be a problem because they just find your blog.
0: Right. A a movie blog with, what, 1,300, 1,400 entries? I forget the exact number.
1: Yeah. They're welcome to try. I can't remember exactly what I put. Maybe if we end up on, on one of these minutes having nothing to talk about, I'll find it, but that's not one of the films we're talking about. So No,
0: and so as minute 16, we get the tail end of session one with Ava. So if you have any comments on Ava, general stuff, maybe we will be back on the show again later for a nice Ava minute. We'll see.
1: That's true. I haven't had any Ava.
0: She was only on screen for, uh, was it, two minutes, nine seconds? Oh, wow. Session one is super short and I don't like it.
1: I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I want to say about Ava. I mean, she's... Well, have i have literally forgotten the actress's name? It was in my head a second ago and it
0: slipped. Lysia Vikander.
1: see Vikander. Yeah, she's a fantastic actress. I saw her in a film recently. Light Between the Oceans, I think it was called something about oceans and
0: light is that the the lighthouse one yeah yeah okay that was quite good that. she was in uh the green knight last year oh yes i never saw that and barely recognizable at the beginning of that movie too i was like wait who is this actress i, I knew her and she was good I had to look it up
1: i think she's one of those actors incidentally so are our two leads are those sort of actors that immerse themselves in a role so much that they're never going to quite achieve. I mean, you could debate as to whether they're household names, but they're never going to quite achieve the status of like big household names because they're so different. I don't come out of the film going that was Donald Gleeson. I come out of the film going that was Caleb.
0: Right. Plus, you and I were different than the average person. We would notice Donald Gleason because, uh, you know, about time. Yeah. We pay attention to movies like Oscar Isaac. There are plenty of people who know exactly who Oscar Isaac is and love the way he disappears in a role. And then there's probably tons of people that don't even notice. Because he disappears in a role.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the top examples of an actor like that or an actress like that would be Tony Collette. Yeah. I think that, like, there are multiple things I've seen Tony Collette in that I'll then, like, mention to, like, my family or whatever. Like, complete example, you'd be like, watching The Sixth Sense, and I'd, like, make a comment, like, oh, you never believe it's the same woman as from About a Boy, would you? And, like, they wouldn't know. That's a really bad example because those two characters are very similar. <laughs> but also,
0: yeah, I didn't even think of her being in About a Boy. Yeah. I think I only saw that movie once, but yeah. It's a good so. film. It's a good film. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but yeah, so so I think there are a few of them where almost they are two good actors. Yeah, that's my credit to kind of all of the cast in Next and I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what differs from the other two films that we talk about as well is that that the people who lead those films are very much leading actors.
0: I think Kate Winslet's similar in that she can disappear a lot, where some people won't know movie she's in.
1: Yeah, I guess she's only a household name because of Titanic. <laughs>
0: But also she makes eccentric choices in her movies as well, which yeah, I mean, she's hitting very specific audiences.
1: I think if she hadn't done Titanic, she wouldn't be the household name she is.
0: Right, exactly. And she, she'd be alongside all these other
1: actors in that point. I almost feel bad for some actors that are so good at doing what they do that they're never going to be noticed as actors.
0: They're enjoying their job. But, you know, I'm sure I'm sure Donald Gleason is doing well. Right. (laughs) I hope they like what they're doing Mm. so they can keep doing it because clearly they keep getting cast because filmmakers notice them.
1: Yeah. Because like, I mean, Oscar Isaac, I probably talked about the last episode, but coming out of this, I don't feel like I'm watching the same man who was Joseph in the nativity story. Right. It'd be weird if I did feel that, to be fair, (laughs) but,
0: you know. I'm going to talk next week about biblical references with the names, so we'll see.
1: Next week's the biblical stuff, and yet this week is when we talk about God. Yes. But no, that yeah, the biblical stuff is interesting.
0: Yeah, I go into the names of, I think, every character in this. Well, except for the helicopter pilot, because his name's not in the movie, and it's just Jay. It's not interesting. So what
1: about, is it Kyoko, the other one?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm
1: intrigued to hear.
0: There's Kyoko, there's Amber, there's Lily, there's... Oh
1: yeah, I forgot about all of them.
0: Jade, Jasmine, and I'm forgetting one. I'm forgetting the first one. We don't see the first one until the body in the closet. I get into all that next week.
1: So can you tell what the drink is that Caleb is drinking? Because I was trying to figure it out.
0: It seems to be a fake brand. Okay. There's a couple different beers they drink throughout the movie, and this one... It's like Murano brand. You can see Nathan's bottle better when he grabs the second one toward the end of the minute.
1: Oh, yes. I'm just going to know that now. It's not quite as clear to see. Because from a glance, I thought it was Heineken. But then
0: it's got a different... I think they copied a sort of motif of one that exists, but I couldn't figure out which one because I didn't know the name. I don't know beers. That's fair. It looks like a Stella Artois label, but red instead of green. I think it's the one I found and similar to Heineken. Yeah, as well. Yeah, I can see that. But the name is, I'm pretty sure it says Marano, which is not a beer brand. First, we end the scene from last time with Caleb saying yes. He's going to come back as Nathan adds a post-it to the wall. Ava laughs and says good. And then we get two establishing shots of mountains and Caleb by the front windows in the dining room we've already seen part of. And Nathan is sitting on a bench off against the wall. And this has got to be kind of at the point in which that they're closer as like friends and
1: colleagues, isn't
0: it? They're getting there, yeah.
1: There's less tension than we have later on.
0: They've only had, in the movie, they've had two conversations. They had the conversation in the kitchen and that transitioned into the bedroom. Okay. That phrasing sounds like they had sex. They didn't.
1: (laughs) Not on screen, anyway.
0: Not that we know of. That's why he really picked Caleb. (laughs) The dark corners of Reddit, uh, (laughs) you know, that's probably something somewhere.
1: But yeah, I think... How, how long do we think he's he's been staying there now? Well, we know... Like how long into his stay uh, We have
0: reason to believe it's either the same day or it's the next morning. Okay. Because we know he's there for a week total.
1: Oh, yeah, I forget it's only a
0: week. And yeah. So we could kind of work backward. Right now, I'm not sure if this is still the same day or is supposed to be the next day. Because also they're far enough north that he could have been arriving you know, late at night and it'd still be light out because I don't think we know what time of year it is. No, that's a good point. They're in Alaska, there's going to be some snow and cold-looking geography either way.
1: Talking about the beers earlier, I think that does instantly kind of show that they're trying to get along outside of the business side of things.
0: Well, and especially Nathan. I think he's doing it deliberately. He wants Caleb to be his bro. That's how he wants them to interact.
1: Do you think it's significant in the film that we see conversation between two humans
0: that's actually something i was thinking about last night in terms of this minute and going forward is i think we might see more conversation between nathan and caleb than we do caleb and Ava.
1: yeah there's never much conversation
0: it doesn't feel like it the first time you watch it it feels like those Ava conversations are the movie and they're important and then realizing how short that first one was i was like I think they all might be that short, in which case we're getting a lot more Nathan and Caleb and it kind of changes what this movie's about.
1: But I think because they're talking about Ava most of the time. Yeah. It's her kind of her her presence within the film is a lot more than her presence on screen. Kind of a little bit like, I remember being quite surprised when we were doing Two Minutes About Time about how little Bill Nye is actually in the film. Right. Um, And he shot like all his scenes in like a week or something.
0: A few key scenes and they're really good. Yeah. And you remember those.
1: It's those few key scenes. And then there's a lot of conversation around the dad and things like that, that kind of lead us to feel he's more present than he is. Like this. I mean,
0: we only get three characters that have lines through most of the movie we're going to think they're all kind of equal.
1: Mm. but I kind of forget Kyoko exists and the other robots.
0: I think in terms of screen time, it's Caleb, Nathan, Ava, Kyoko. Yeah. So we're going to get a lot of the man-man conversation more than man-woman.
1: Which, do you think the man-man conversation is where... Part of the controversy about the male gaze within the film also could come from?
0: I think it it also came from the way it was advertised. Yeah. They used the shot of Ava lying down in the thing, and I think they used the silhouette of her when she's taking her leggings off. Okay. And those both are definitely male gaze kind of shots. Yes. Yeah. But they aren't what this movie does most of its time.
1: Yeah. I think I said in the last episode is that, like, I can't remember how old I was when this came out. Oh, 10? 2014, 2014. Yeah. Yeah. So I was 10 when this came out. I knew of it as the sci-fi film with nudity. Mm.
0: Plus, if you actually watch it, you're thinking, why does he have these robots? And he has a conversation about how they can have sex. So it feels like sex bot. And then every time they show her, you're thinking of it in those regards as well, even if you don't need to.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And of course, like her female figure is clear throughout
0: as well, which is the point. (laughs) I mean, technically, she spends most of the movie without clothing.
1: Yeah. That's true, which I I, th- I guess almost the fact that we see her put on the dress mm-hmm. then makes it feel clear for the rest of the film that she's undressed. Right. Which is then interesting.
0: And, and that scene is filmed as you would film a scene of her taking off clothes as well. It's very close up of body parts. And...
1: The scene at the end with the full frontal nudity mm-hmm. is her more clothed than we see yes. her.
0: And is filmed as such. That part isn't male gazy at all. It, it, it's not sexual, which some people inherently think otherwise if there's nudity it's sexual yeah so it changes the way people who don't think too much about what the male gaze is will definitely think this movie suffers from that a lot
1: well we can talk more about nudity on our uh, time loop film in uh, groundhog day yeah very brief i'd say that isn't sexual either really no also like the issue with the film we are two men discussing whether the film is male gazey or not
0: right i'll need to double check this is a weird thing to say I need to double check what other movies Alicia Vikander did nude scenes for because she had a recent interview where she was talking about basically how they didn't have a intimacy coordinator on a movie where she did a nude scene. And she basically got left standing around on the set naked kind of awkwardly. Did she say what the film was? She did not. Or could it be this? Like it was, it was very specifically she did not say. And I'm like, I think it might be this one. There's a chance it was. Is she the wife in the Danish girl. She's in the Danish girl yeah because i think she has a new scene in that as well but if it's this one that's unfortunate because that scene is done so well otherwise they would suck so i'll try to figure it out before we get there that's late in the movie oh
1: yeah i just found this interview yeah well like a week ago i also managed to clear my search history for yeah. just un- unknowingly thinking i just searched the words alicia Vikander nudity and she was left naked on set for a couple hours no one showed up with a robe right okay but then I guess it could also be in a film that you don't see any intimate areas true right it could have been something
0: where it just shows her from the back or like something. there's
1: a there's a sex scene in like between the oceans or whatever it's called I think it's called like between the oceans and there were like a few moments of near nudity but that like weren't particularly sexualized which is, right. I know it's weird because I said it's a sex scene but weren't like gratuitous weren't anything yeah. else you know were just like scenes of getting dressed or undressed but she could still have been left I guess at those points
0: yeah I hope to figure out what movie that was by the time we get to that scene, which is going to be a while from now. Now for this minute, Caleb by the windows, half turned. He's holding a beer in the script. Nathan says, so, and Caleb says, sorry, I was just ordering my thoughts. And Nathan tells him, don't order, just speak, which feels like a command he's given his robot. But I won't talk about that this week. (laughs) Trying to cut down on my Caleb AI talk. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, it is interesting because I'd never really thought much about the Caleb AI among except the surface level of him checking whether he's an AI and then he isn't. Mm -hmm. I'd never taken that interpretation until listening to your show. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is a reading that I'd never really thought about, which is
0: weird. Well, the great thing is it barely changes anything in the movie. His scenes will still play the same because his motivations are still the same. He still thinks he's who he is.
1: Yeah. So do you think that's another thing that the film is kind of saying is that there isn't really a difference?
0: Well, yeah, because we are essentially programmed by other people, no matter what. I talked about this, was that last week or is that next week or both? I think it's both talking about how language programs people. And like, there's very little difference between what an AI can be. And last week I conceded a child. Next week, I argue, sorry, I've pre-written most of next week already. <laughs> I argue that there is no difference. Yeah, There's no essential difference. The philosophers who argue like machines can never think are basically operating, and you might agree with this because you're a religious person, on the idea that there's something innate about humans that makes us different. And every time they say it, it's like they're just avoiding saying that we have a soul Yeah, because they're trying to avoid that language. And it always feels like that's the argument they're making.
1: That is true. And it's one of the things that I found kind of most interesting about the film as a whole is that for a sci-fi film this film is very much about what it means to be human. Yeah. And yeah, I guess the soul interpretation is kind of one of the best ways to look at it because we as humans kind of constantly separate ourselves from all other creatures, don't we? You know, we're constantly kind of seeing Mm -hmm. ourselves as we're different or we're better than all these others. And I don't think we've ever properly explain what there's many ways in which we're different of course but i I guess kind of that separation that wants to know that we're special Mm -hmm. is kind of what drives this film
0: essentially as an atheist (laughs) i will say (laughs) sort of my interpretation is as like history of humanity gaining language and our brains becoming complex in that particular way is that we sought out things to explain what made us different but then all that did is just make us expand on what that difference was like the more we interpreted it the more we made it concrete and huge when really there's very little difference especially if you look at young humans like chimpanzees are smarter than toddlers you know yeah but we act like that human toddler is inherently more valuable which it is on a personal level because that's our kid or we recognize that it could be our kid if it's someone else's
1: yeah i think so and i think as a whole, my—I I could be wrong once again because I'm coming from the Christian perspective. I, I feel like we're probably prefer right. each of our opinions constantly with from a Christian perspective. But we got—we got that. Down. We, got, we got it. Is yeah. that I think that those who don't have a certain faith—I can say this, don't have the Christian faith, but I imagine there may be other faiths that lead people to think or believe similar.
0: Probably all of them.
1: Is that, that those who don't have it? The, the the time on earth is considered more important. And I think the meaning of life or the significance of your life is to consider yourself different and special.
0: Well, if you don't, you're not going to want to keep going.
1: Yeah. Well, inherently built within Christianity is the idea of being made in the image of God. So therefore, we are already kind of got that knowing of our importance and our significance. But I think it's almost human nature to search for that. To try and find what separates us from everyone else and what makes us important.
0: I mean, it, it has to be. Yeah. You have to find a purpose for your existence or you won't have the urge to continue it. And so we, either because it's innate or biological, it's still going to end up being the same.
1: So you're sort of suggesting that the meaning of life could be the search to find meaning.
0: Yeah. yeah. If there is one. This is deeper than I expected to get. Or it's whatever you personally find. Yeah. Like. I don't think there's an inherent one, but I understand the need to think there is one. Yeah. Because that's helpful. That will make bad things feel like they happened for a reason. Yeah,
1: a goal or a purpose is kind of what we're driven by. And I guess purpose kind of builds back into the whole kind of AI thing as to, of course, Ava is built with a purpose. Yep. So because her purpose is known by others, but she still has a purpose as we have a purpose, does that make her more or less human?
0: Right. And then also, where does her purpose come from? Because we know she has programming, but we also see specifically that her urge to escape is not coming from programming. It's coming from treatment. Yeah, Nathan doesn't treat her nicely, and he does that deliberately. He is making her want to get out, because that's the test from his perspective. Yeah. Is will Caleb try to help her?
1: Well, yeah, it's sort of like her knowledge of herself and what she is and isn't capable of and the issues that she faces is what inherently makes her more human and less robot, less artificial, because she's aware.
0: She might even be easier for us to understand her motivations in the film. Yeah. Relative to Caleb or Nathan.
1: I'm sure, now, knowing yourself and your way deeper grasp of philosophy of what I have, I'm sure that the whole Descartes, I think, therefore I am,
0: has come up before. It came up next week. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there we go. She is aware of herself and she she thinks and has her own conscience. Therefore, mm-hmm. she exists as intelligence. Yeah. And yeah, even though she's artificial, does that affect the fact that she is still intelligent?
0: Right. And then you get into definitions of intelligence artificial, and it's a, it's a whole thing. That'll happen next week. Don't worry. We should get to their conversation here because it's a little dense. Oh, yeah. We might not have comments on most of it, but there's a bit of it. Caleb goes, oh, man, she's fascinating. When you talk to her, you're just through the looking glass. Nathan, of course, likes the quotes. Says through the looking glass. Wow, you're good with words, Caleb. You're quotable. I love that this scene, if you interpret it as Caleb is an AI or someone who's autistic, it plays the same way because he just wants to correct him, even though he's getting positive notes on what he said, but he just wants to correct it. He's like, actually, that's someone else's quote.
1: I quite like the idea of viewing Caleb as
0: autistically coded, actually. hmm He's definitely that, because that's essentially why he's picked. You wanted someone who is going to let the test happen and let her drive how far it goes, because that's the point.
1: And his drive for purpose and lack of distraction, mm-hmm. I think, is also there because he's he's there with his reason. He has been told to do what he does. Right.
0: And that's all he will do.
1: Yeah. And that's all he does. I'm saying that from the perspective of someone who is debatably on the spectrum, depending on your view of the spectrum because dyspraxia crosses and intertwines. Oh, yeah. I also work with a lot of people on the spectrum, and to me, that does make a lot of sense. And also, I like the fact that it's not inherently a film about autism no. or trying to portray it, but it's it's there. Yeah, there is the understanding of, of a potential romance between Caleb and Ava. Yeah. Is the conventions of, like, a rom-com or romantic drama is this conversation around about Ava straight after the interaction... Is like exactly what you'd get between the two, you know, two best friends in a romantic yeah. film.
0: Telling them what what she's like,
1: kind of talking about what she's like. His obsession with wanting to talk about her, you know, how she's different to other girls, mm-hmm. how you know what their next interaction is going to be like. And so I feel like already they're kind of setting us up with the the conventions of of romance, so that we we see that yeah. later on and that we kind of expect it because his his joy at talking about her, like of course he's got joy at talking about her because he's just right. met AI. But he's talking about it like someone who's just seen someone that think they might have fallen in love with.
0: Right. This is that conversation where it's like, you know, I'm going to marry her. Yeah. That kind of thing. And your your best friend is like, okay, tell me about this girl. Yeah. But then, of course, Nathan's perspective in the conversation is very different because he built her.
1: Because he knows about the girl more than he thinks
0: of her as an object. Yeah. Which leads us to his next line. You know, I wrote down that other line you came up with, the one about how if I've invented a machine with consciousness, I'm not a man, I'm God. Caleb, of course, corrects that immediately.
1: What directly was the other line he said? I didn't get the chance to check that.
0: He said it would be the biggest event in the history of man. And then Caleb said that if you made a thinking machine, that's not the history of man, that's the history of gods. Okay, yeah. But Nathan immediately misquotes it and now misquotes it even farther because now it's, I'm God. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of, this is godly, which was the implication. Because it is godly, it's creation of life if he succeeds. Yeah, well,
1: he definitely has a sort of Messiah complex anyway. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because obviously, like, the the different people that Oscar Isaac as well, like, based his performance on were quite... Interesting. Because I guess the whole idea of the creator of character per se then leads into his his Kubrick inspiration mm-hmm. behind right. him. And I think it's fair to say I'm not overly familiar with like Kubrick outside of just a few of his films, but for the few things I'm aware of, I feel like Kubrick had a bit of a sort of
0: Messiah co-creator complex. And very meticulous about every detail. Like yeah. everything in the film is his responsibility and it belongs to him. Yeah. So yeah, it's that same sort of ownership of You're talking about being a filmmaker, you know, already. Yeah. There's a lot of people on a film set. A lot of the directors we revere early on in film history were horrible people. Yes. But that's why everyone knows who they are, is because they got everyone on that set to do what they wanted, and that film came out how they wanted it to be.
1: Absolutely. I think, to an extent, and this is where it properly leads into what I'm going to talk about in my exam, because the question's on authorship, so... This is revision now. Yeah. To an extent, I don't think in the modern film climate, you can have as much of an auteur as you could before. I think there are so many moving parts.
0: No, we have leftover ones. Yeah. We have people like Spielberg, where he's been around long enough, we all know him, but he still has to deal with more unions, crew, films are more complex.
1: You can, you can have an auteur in their individual craft, I think, like you could have a script, like a Richard Curtis. I would say right. as an author in what he does. I had the man having the conversation with him on Two Minutes About Time mm-hmm. was that he, the the script is the authorship of Richard Curtis. But when it becomes a film, yesterday, for example, is it a Danny Boyle film or is it a Richard Curtis film? Well, it's both because they right. both did their thing. And as much as it's also a film of the set mm-hmm. decorator and their style, and a film of the production designer and a film of the composer and the sound mixer. Yeah. They've all got their inherent styles that you're bringing into it.
0: Right. Spielberg's been using the same director of photography for most of his films. Yeah. For decades.
1: So it's as much their style as his.
0: Yeah. Alex Garland has like collated, I guess, or s- sorted out a list of people that he works with on each movie. Yeah. He's only directed two movies and a TV show. He's working on a third.
1: Yeah. So it's hard to like view him as an author from that small amount anyway.
0: But I think because he had a history where he came up as a screenwriter with it, we recognized. Yeah. It gave him a little more clout once he was a director. to be like, I know what I want visually. And these are some people that are out there.
1: Well, yeah, he turned down getting like a big studio behind Ex Machina mm-hmm. so he could fund it and run it in his own way.
0: Right. I mean, I did an Annihilation Minute. A bunch of the crew, especially main people, visual effects supervisors and stuff like that, are the same people on this movie. because he kept them and i'm pretty sure he kept the same people for some of them worked on devs his tv show and some of them worked on men
1: i think i think what is interesting with that is that from my perspective as a director producer i bring people on because i like what they do and i like their style Mm -hmm. part of that you know if i bring on a dop who i'm a fan of their style i'm bringing them on for their authorship within their craft i know i'm probably playing like like very light with the term or term, but that's the point I'm trying to make is that there's, there's so many moving parts that I think most of the time the director gets too much credit.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like the the Oscars as we recorded this just a few weeks ago and the Best Picture nominee is the producer. Yeah. But most people don't think about it that way because nowadays with a lot of the movies that get up for Best Picture it's producers who are also the director. And so they get up on the stage a second time if they won director. Yeah. Or they get nominated a second time. And we don't think of Nightmare Alley as the producer's film, although I think Del Toro also produced it. And West Side Story is a Spielberg film, but someone else was responsible for the being the main producer and hiring everyone and doing all that stuff. Well,
1: that's it. Is Yeah, the things that I've worked as a producer on, even myself, wouldn't consider them my film <laughs> in a way. But but that's also obviously because I've done stuff where I've been write, a director producer and so they're inherently me right but there's so many moving parts that you know i'd say i have my styles and my methods as a producer but i also wouldn't say that you know because of that the last project i worked on Izzy versus jess i wouldn't say that's a luke allen film i wouldn't you know i i feel like yeah i was a moving part
0: i really haven't made films yeah like i'm thinking of it as terms of like this podcast it sort of comes down to how I edit it. So my editor title is probably more important than my host yeah. title or my writing title for my notes, because that's where the tone comes through. If I cut out where someone's being funny because we had a serious conversation the rest of the time, you get a very serious show. Yes, You can change the whole context of things.
1: And in terms of that editor, it's Mark Day for X Machina, right? I believe so. And I think he did About Time as well.
0: He also worked on Annihilation. So then I guess he's a British editor. I guess so, yeah. That's why he's working on those movies. And so that also will affect who's coming into where you work is where you produce
1: it. Yeah, that's very true. And I guess... Once again, to kind of, we talked about Kubrick earlier, mostly in link to Oscar Isaac's portrayal of it, but the film itself is very Kubrickian. Mm -hmm. I guess the link with that is it may be set around Americans, but it is made by a Brit.
0: But It is made in England, yeah.
1: Which is very much like Kubrick. Mm -hmm. You know, he made like very American films, but a lot of himself and his crew were English. Yeah,
0: same thing with Annihilation. It's, I won't say where, because that's part of that show, but it's set in America (laughs) and... The characters are American, but it was filmed in England.
1: Admittedly, I still really need to see Annihilation. I'm just looking at Mark Day's stuff. He also edited The Girl in the Cafe, which anyone who ah, listens to Two Minutes About Time knows, knows I'm a big like fan that, of. Yeah. I've rewatched that this week. I, I'd be interested to have a look at some of his editing across different things and see whether there's a level of authorship to him as
0: well. Yeah, it, you can always find that. If you know yeah. who the screenwriter is, you can find similarities. If you know who the director is, you can find the similarities. We just inherently, and it's partly a union thing, is that everything is called like a Steven Spielberg film or yeah. an Alex Garland film. It's The way it's credited is we think of director as the one most responsible. And as long as they accept that responsibility, I'm kind of okay with it. Everyone else got paid. Yeah, Everyone else will get jobs based on this being on their resume.
1: Of course, there is the line between authorship and authorship as well.
0: Yeah. Oh,
1: definitely. But yeah, to, to any listeners who may be finicky with stuff like that, my overuse of authorship was to make a point.
0: Well, yeah, and we're looking at a film where the writer and director is the same guy. Wait till yeah. you know Thursday where you got Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry. They're both very strange, but it's a very different kind of strange. Yes. But they mesh together really well.
1: Yes. Because watching both of their works separately surprised me mm. where I was like, this is very different to Eternal Sunshine or very different. Yeah, right.
0: You split that movie in two and you get them. And that makes sense.
1: And to, to loop back around to our conversation at the start of the episode yes.
0: is, of course, authorship and
1: authorship it does work with performances as well. You have actors that are auteurs in their craft. And what we kind of expressed is that these three are probably less so. They aren't certain styles and subjects present within their work.
0: I think Um, they could be. Yeah. Now, continuing this minute, there is a little bit more dialogue. Yes. Caleb doesn't talk much in this conversation. He does next minute. This minute, it is Nathan deciding what Caleb said. Yeah. And Caleb trying to correct him. And Nathan's doing all the talking because he's like, I don't think that's exactly what I... And Nathan's just still going. I just thought, fuck, man, that is so good. When we get to tell the story, you know, I turned to Caleb and he looked up at me and he said, you're not a man, you're God. And Caleb again is like, yeah, but I didn't say that. So he's, he's trying to fix it.
1: Is there anything in there about man's relationship with AI in that conversation? Is there any way that we can interpret Caleb as an AI and Nathan is kind of finding his own meaning behind it?
0: I think in this sense, it could be some people's interpretation of like Caleb is like humanity and Nathan is God now because he's deciding what the conversation's about. He's deciding what you think about it. He's telling you what you need to be doing or else. And he's already planned how this week is going to end. He just gets it wrong.
1: Or to throw it maybe deeper, on Caleb as God and Nathan as the church. That's not what I meant to say. Oh, yeah. And. Yeah. yes Well, when you were telling me i need to do this and i'm doing this and it's kind of the, but that wasn't the way i wanted my words to come across right i didn't that reading of of god and the church carries throughout the film i'd be willing to give it a try and, and
0: i think quite deliberately with the the setting out in the middle of nowhere and the setup of three people this is caleb is adam ava's obviously eve yeah it's her name but then it comes down to is nathan Actually, that comes down to problematic racial stereotypes because then Kyoko's the serpent? That's an interesting thought. Nathan sets down his beer, gets up to get another one. He says, so anyway, you're impressed? And in my notes, I put it. I mean, it's a statement, not a question. So is this an instruction? Is he telling Caleb to be impressed and stop interrupting? Caleb laughs and says, yes, yes. And the minute ends. So thank you for listening to this show. Manushaks Machina is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for more Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project minute by minute, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. And you can follow all three shows in one feed now as well. Just search an Existential Trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter at X Minutia, Instagram Minutia underscore X underscore Machina, or Facebook at Minutia X Machina. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. And you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time.
1: What imperative does a gray box have to interact with another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction? The real test is to show you that she's a robot, and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. Hmm.